Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast where we are entering the stage of the season where we should really be starting to hit form. We should be starting to peak in terms of our performance. And this week we're taking a sneak peek at peaking. What does peaking mean? Can it be predicted? How important is it to be able to do so? And how has peak performance and peak age in football and the understanding of it changed over time? With me is Michael Cox, very much in an extended prime. We've got peak Mark Kerry alongside us uh, and Liam Tharm as well, who no one's quite sure about yet because on the one hand, he's racked up a ton of career minutes, articles and podcasts at a young age. And the next question is, will he flame out or be the James Milner, perhaps, of modern football journalism? As for me, washed up Ali Maxwell. That's certainly how it feels right now with a 10-week-old puppy running rings around me. Uh, good to be in the studio and a great topic on the agenda. Michael, you're really the catalyst for this after an article that you wrote for The Athletic this week titled, Just When Does a Striker Peak? Anytime between 19 and 35. Talk to me about the idea behind that. Yeah, it's a tongue-in-cheek uh, headline. I think I should clarify. I'm not just saying, yeah, actually, we've, we've run the numbers and it's between 19 and 35. But yeah, we, we talk uh, a lot about, you know, the fact that forwards or footballers in general tend to peak in their late 20s. I think we've chatted about that before. Certainly, there's been some articles on the site before about that. But I want to look at the range and the outliers and the fact that, yeah, well, 28, 29 is probably the most common time for a striker to, to score a lot of goals or the most goals of their career. Actually, you get some kind of mad examples or mad exceptions where 19, 20, a player can be at the most dangerous. Sometimes it's mid-30s. And I thought just going through and, and looking at the range and, you know, looking at the stories of why it happened to certain players very early or very late uh, could be quite interesting. It strikes me that striker is the easiest position on the pitch to try and measure, even by proxy, a player's peak because goals is the strongest currency of a striker. It is overall, Mark, Liam, you know, a fascinating conversation because it's very, very complicated to start talking about the peaks of performances, different positions, different player profiles as well. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that, that it, it depends on the position. You could think of the the yeah the currency by which you, you measure it. There's been some great work done by... Tom Warville, formerly of this parish, as I always like to say, that he's done it based on minutes played. But that's obviously from a physical perspective. You could extend that to a physical perspective of the amount of running you get through, the amount of sprinting, high intensity work that you're doing, or just from a, a technical perspective. You know, how many passes you're making, um, what's your pass accuracy, etc. So 
I think as Michael's done so, so clearly, you need to make sure that you're setting up the criteria ahead of then talking about Pete. But today we're going to talk about all of the different criteria that we could uh, chop and slice and dice it by. You've also got the fact that often teams can peak at a certain time collectively. You can get individuals peaking within a team that isn't doing particularly mm. well. Um, so sort of trying to, I think, yeah, work through the the signal and the noise and all of that is, is quite complex. Michael, was there any part of writing this piece that was trying to rail against what I think has been a sort of growing part of football discourse, in particular the rise of, of analytics and trying to better measure things within the game of this idea that you need to have a squad with a certain grouping in terms of ages. Was there anything in writing this piece that was trying to bust some myths? Not bust myths as such, but maybe just to answer the question in a different way. Just saying strikers peak at 27, let's say. Well, actually, there's examples of strikers doing it eight years beforehand and eight years afterwards. So that's a really big window. And I suppose it's the, the different balance between how you'd approach things from a data perspective and how you'd approach things from a story perspective because the interesting stories are not the average ones. The interesting stories are the ones who peak when they're 19 and the ones who peak when they're 35, 36. So, so I suppose it was almost approaching a data task from not a data perspective, from an anecdote perspective. And even those who almost have a second peak or a different peak to the point that I made before. I'm thinking maybe of the most obvious example being a Cristiano Ronaldo. His peak as a as a winger was far different to maybe his peak as a goal scorer, which then you're thinking about the difference between your physical metrics and your, your goal scoring metrics. So to look at it from, from an outlier perspective is really interesting and, and more of a case-by-case -case basis because then you can start to, to untangle and disentangle what exactly we're talking about when, when we're talking about peak. Michael, you wrote about 17 players uh, between the ages of 19 and 35 when they hit their peak. We're not going to go through all 17, but I think by looking at a batch of five, we could probably pick out some interesting talking points. I mean, Ronaldo, original Ronaldo, phenomenal Ronaldo, Ronaldo Nazario is, is the first name that you write about peaking aged 19. But in there at age 20, Robbie Fowler as well. Were there any conclusions or trends amongst those that you felt peaked super early in their career? Yeah, so the first five from 19 to 24, Ronaldo, Fowler, Andy Cole, Pippo Inzaghi and Fernando Torres. And I think there's a very clear theme there. They were excellent at a young age by definition, but they depended a lot on their pace. They then suffered from Quite bad injuries. I think Ronaldo's the obvious one, Torres as well. But to be honest, all of them did have quite bad muscular injuries. And once they lost that pace, they just weren't the same player. They still had some goal-scoring instincts. Their positioning was good. They made good runs. But it was really their speed, which uh, I'd say they depended on to be a really top-class player. Outside of any trends when it comes to physicality, there's also a kind of player's social and personal historical context. One of them that stands out on this front is Diego Costa, Michael, who, who peaks at 24 per the piece, but is a strange concept in that he's peaking before what might be considered the average peak age of a striker, but came to the game so late, which maybe uh, helps to explain why he wasn't scoring goals as a as a kid like Robbie Fowler and Ronaldo? Yeah, so 
At 24, so I should say the age for all of this is their age at the start of the season rather than the end. In that season where he starts at 24, he scores 27 goals for Atletico Madrid. And that comes out of nowhere because he hasn't previously scored 10 goals in a season uh, for any club at any level. And so that's quite interesting because there's some quotes from the director of football at uh, Atletico Madrid at the time saying, well, he came to organise football very late. He didn't play in a proper team until he was 16, 17. So that kind of explains why it takes a while for him to kind of explode. But then after that, I mean, he has another two seasons at Chelsea where he scores 20. But from 28 onwards, he scored three, two, five, two, four, one, two goals. So it's been a really strange career. It's been a you know very slow to start a massive peak and then quite a long tail off at the end. So yeah, when I went through, I was trying to find players who had big obvious peaks. Mm. You know, there was players like Raul or Thierry Henry or Andrei Shevchenko where they scored a similar amount of goals like three or four different seasons. But someone like Diego Costa is much more interesting because there's a very sharp spike. I wonder if Costa in a different way it was to do with his physicality. I remember him being really good 1v2 a lot of the time. There's a game at the Etihad, I can't remember which season, where he bullies the two City centre-backs and I think he scores a goal on the angle. And uh, just to sort of build on Michael's point really about sort of the idea of footballing age. Um, mm. We've spoken before about sort of biological age of players. So how developed their body is or isn't relative to when they're actually born. Um, there's some good examples in there, actually. I think Drees Mertens is one of them that you write about, you say, or he says that when he was 18, he was actually sort of really underdeveloped. And then footballing age is a very similar concept. How many years you've been playing the game for in sort of a, an organised um, academy perspective. So a player that comes in sort of age nine or 10 to an academy, yeah, could have four or five more years than someone like Acosta that comes into it late. And that is something that academies will look at when they recruit players and are considering okay, how developed is this player relative to all the things that sort of surround them in that in that different context? One thing that I noticed, Michael, is that the players that you write about are, you know, big name players who played either in the Premier League, in La Liga, uh, in Germany or in Serie A. But there's no one on the list that is peaking while playing in the Premier League after the age of about 26, 27. There are, however, quite a few players who did so in Serie A, who scored a lot of goals latterly in Serie A, including the likes of Higuain and, and Toto Di Natale. Yeah, I mean, I should say I did kind of handpick these to, to get the most interesting stories in. So I could have had someone like Robin Van Persie, for example, who peaked relatively late in the Premier League. But you're right. I, I mean, I wasn't trying to build any pattern in particular, but it's clear there is a pattern with a lot of players peaking quite late in Serie A, including Drews Mertens, Edin Dzeko, Antonio Di Natale, Fabio Qualiarella, and there's others. I mean, I could have had Totti in there, could have had Luca Toni in there, although his numbers are kind of distorted because his best goal-scoring season was in Serie B, which would have made the graph look a bit crap. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's clear that in Serie A, the pace is a little bit slower. Maybe the clubs are now having to take players at the end of their careers because they're not as financially... Uh, strong as they once were. So yeah, Syria does seem to be the league to go if you want to extend your career. I think Italy have got kind of history of, of doing that. I remember reading a lot about the Milan lab that um, the AC Milan designed back in 2002, I think, designed to extend the, the careers of so many players. And I think in the 2007 Champions League final, I think their whole back line were all over the age of, of 30. Um, and it was a, I think he was a chiropractor, Jean-Pierre Miesman, uh, who came in and, and founded this Milan lab uh, for AC Milan and incorporated so many different kind of quirky techniques. Um, one of them, I don't know if you have read about this guy, is about 
Clarence Seydorf had a groin injury for quite some time and uh, Miesman decided to, to take out his wisdom teeth to say, you know, this is something that you need to change. And apparently he had no injuries in uh, his groin following that. So it was quite, quite out of the box. Did he ever rub cottage cheese on a player or was that just Felix Magat at Fulham? May well, yeah, there's, there's so many sort of quirky examples like that. But it, it did extend the, the careers. You think of Andre Pirlo, Clarence Seydorf, uh, Cafu, Gennaro Gattuso, Nesta, Maldini, of course. There was, there was a really good, and um, there's other players as well that I've probably forgotten here, but they did um, reduce the... The, the volume of, of injuries quite significantly and I don't know whether that also does go hand in hand with the, the playing style of the, the league more generally but it's a really good case study in uh, in extending the, the careers of so many players. That's that's genuinely quite fascinating to me. I think that's, that's quite cool. There's a really useful Glenn Murray quote I'd like to sort of throw in here that he said after scoring against Arsenal a few years ago now but they were asking him how he'd sort of managed to translate his goal scoring from the EFL into the Premier League I believe it's only he and Ricky Lambert who have scored 30 plus goals in each of the top four English tiers since Murray's debut and he just said quite simply well the goalposts don't move that for a striker that as you go through the leagues okay the defences might change in terms of quality and how the attack sort of shapes up around you but um I think as we speak now about the physicality of defenders and defence is definitely getting better that a lot more of the goal strikers score, at least at the top level, have to be one-touch finishes, have to be smart inside the box where you have to move well or you're making two or three movements just to find some space. You have to score a variety of types of finish with you know either foot or with your head. So for those players who I think Quagliera is a great example in the piece that he's good technically, maybe not as good physically, players like that then can be okay later in their career because that's how you're going to score most of your goals. Yeah, Michael, was that a trend of those who peaked later where those uh, teenage peak players were just phenomena, mm -hmm. uh, often physically developed way earlier than most? Uh, those towards the end of their career, it strikes me there's a trend where, it, in their own words, it sounds like more of a mental psychological thing. Mm -hmm. They often talk about professionalism, to extend their career, you know, diet, sleep, looking after your body, and then I suppose having that increased understanding of the game itself due to experience? Yeah, definitely. And that is kind of caused an effect in terms of a few of them actually, I would say, changed their positions as well. Mm. I mean, Drews Mertens is the obvious one, was a winger, became a number nine. But I think you can kind of say the same for Di Natale, who certainly came through as more of a wide attacker. And even Quagliarella, he was always a second striker. He wasn't at number nine. So, yeah, a few of them kind of, it feels like the lack of mobility actually helped them score more goals, whereas the ones at the start, obviously, it's the lack of mobility, which means they peak very early. So, yeah, you, I guess you just have to know how to adapt. So, so sort of uh, adjacent to the conversation, Mark, I'm sure we've had before about we can now have physical data that measures speed, distance, you know, things like stamina and, and a player's ability to keep going over long periods of time. Uh, and then the fact that for some players, standing still is a strength, Messi being the obvious mm -hmm. one. But as Michael said, a lot of these older prolific goal scorers would say that they are conserving energy and refocusing energy that might have been spent running a channel into uh, more dangerous areas, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's completely contextualising the, the type of physical performance. I think that we've spoken about it before with years gone by where players would try and get up their, their running metrics to when the ball went out, they would go and run to the sidelines. And now there's, um, I've been doing 
some some research for a piece that came out a couple of weeks ago on the use of GPS trackers and um, sort of player monitoring in general, and they have technology now to to look at it specifically for ball in play time mm. for the what the player does when they're on the ball, rather than just running back to the centre circle or you know making those potentially um, pointless runs um, just to get their stats up. So I think now more than ever, the advancement in technology will be able to look at the value of those runs rather than just you know saying that a player hasn't quite reached their their total distance covered for the average for the for the team or whatever it may be uh, last individual michael carrying benzema i like the idea of him having a peak given that he had his first 20 goals in a league season campaign in 2007 2008 age 19 for lyon uh, for him it's you know it's a mountain range isn't it but you know his everest was when he was 33 yeah, and obviously a few different factors in that. One's tactical. He was no longer having to play for Cristiano Ronaldo. But he's quite honest about it himself. You know, he says he's kind of changed his lifestyle a bit, changed his diet, become more professional. I think his game evolved so much, not just because he was the main man, but I just think he became better in the box. I mean, mm -hmm. his movement in that season when Real Madrid won the, the Champions League, he scored two hat-tricks in the knockout stage. Winners against City, win against PSG, I think. I mean, he was just incredible. He was doing things I don't think he was capable of five or six years beforehand. And that wasn't just because of the tactical change. I think he just became a much better player. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast with Ali Maxwell. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Really appreciated Michael's work on that piece. As you said, kind of trying to tell stories adjacent to stats and data. But I'm also interested in the idea of peak performance, both from a player point of view and from a team point of view, from a more analytical, uh, from a data perspective. So Mark and Liam, where do you think we're at right now in those spaces uh, when it comes to discussing peak age? Because I, it did feel like a big part of sort of early data discussion. Warville was forever hmm. putting together charts of, of uh, squads by age and highlighting peak age. And it felt like there was a lot of work being done to try and optimise squad building when looking at this. Yeah, I think that's the, the applied side of it, isn't it? Because it's all very well us sort of discussing it, but you're thinking about what's the, the context of a, of a team, a squad, a club, being able to actually utilise that information to maximise their, their performance on the pitch. So I think that's the the applied side of it. I think, as we touched upon, Tom did some some great work of dividing it into the the different positions, which I think is is absolutely key. You think a central defender doesn't need to do as much high intensity sprinting as a as a pacey winger, and that makes sense. Um, so I think there's that. But as I mentioned before, it's the criteria of what are we considering peak performance. As as I say, is it physical? Is it down to minutes played? Is it down to the the technical performance? And I looked into some 
some research um, that's been conducted, um, you know, in the academic sense. And there's, there's a really interesting 2019 study conducted by some Spanish researchers, and they actually managed to get their, their hands on some tracking data. They had over 14,000 match observations um, from the German Bundesliga from 2012 to 2014. Um, and essentially, they looked at the, the physical and technical performance of these players. So they looked at total distance covered, fast runs, sprints, um, and the share of successful passes. Now, as we know on this podcast, the share of successful passes, passing accuracy comes with its own flaws. We'd prefer to talk about possession value, expected threat, whatever. But for the purpose of this study, it was very interesting and looked at players above the age of, of 30 compared to, to younger players. And they showed, as you would expect, a significantly lower performance in their physical metrics that I just mentioned. But understandably, they made a, a higher pass accuracy. They had a higher technical performance, you might say. So... There was a similar study that was done um, looking at La Liga players as well. So I guess the point I'm making here is that depending on how you want to interpret peak, you could think of it from a physical performance, in which case the older you are, the further you might be away from, from your peak years. But from a tactical uh, perspective or a technical perspective, performance could improve, which is exactly the point that, that Michael sort of made with the, the older players adapting their game, maybe becoming more prolific within the central spaces of the, the box and and gaining another peak performance. So I hope that answers your question, kind of not necessarily coming up with the definitive answer, but it very much depends. And there's some really interesting research that goes on to, to look at that divide. It might sound a little bit silly as well, but I think you don't always want your whole team to be peaking at the same time, at least from a club perspective. There's, I think there's a maybe more so a tournament team, like you can all peak for a major tournament and then if that generation succeeds or doesn't, you can rebuild, you've got more time. But definitely I think the top clubs always seem to be working on a broad perspective of diversity within it of, of different technical and tactical profiles and um, different ages and also within that sort of different experiences so clubs that will get into Europe will then try and bring in players that have experience of playing in Europe to help manage that and of course you need the more games you play and the more competitive you are you need the squad depth as well to um, be able to sort of manage at that level so I think City have a great example of that now with, with Jack Grealish and, and Jeremy Doku Grealish now has obviously played a similar way to how Doku does now, who's come from, from Belgium and, and from France. But Doku's only played 6,500 career minutes, which is fairly high for a 21-year-old. Mm. Um, Grealish is up at over 20,000. Um, and I think people now are probably a bit bored, quite a lot of people of Grealish, because he is so safe and quite controlled with the ball. He isn't as entertaining in terms of being all explosive as he once was. Whereas now, Doku we've seen will do that. He'll run at defenders more. And I don't know if that necessarily is purely sort of a, an age thing. That's also a, you know, there's an argument now that he is adapted and is peaking in a different way because he's gone from being the, the main player at Villa and being that everything winger to being part of a, a treble winning team who have probably peaked in their own right but I think it's yeah it depends how you want to view it, as Mark said not just sort of in terms of the metrics but when you go okay what what's sort of the role here and maybe being part of a peaking team is better than being a peaking individual. I've always thought that it seems very compelling to look at it in terms of what I might call mileage essentially minutes played career senior minutes played rather than biological age uh, in terms of the, what year you were born. Again, possibly focusing too much on extreme examples, Michael, like, but but I can never get past Torres, Rooney in particular, guys who were just doing things that no one else in their age group was doing 
at such a high level and who's so visibly flamed out. It would be more interesting to me to look at any trends and correlations with minutes played and mileage rather than just generally players peak at 26.5 or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think it has to be something to, to be considered. I think we spoke about it last week with, with the Jude Bellingham example, and you could extend that to Bukayo Saka as well, that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because when a player is that good, they are a generational talent and they are maybe physically capable. You think of players like Pedri and, and Gavi, they, they played, I think, either side of 2000 minutes for Barcelona in La Liga when they were 16, 17. And you think, is that a little bit too soon for them because they're still they're still not physically fully developed? Um, never mind the sort of the mental side of the game that comes with that. But if you don't play them and you want to win games of football, then you're not maximising your own team performance. So I think it's, it comes with such a duty of care when you have got a generational talent to take your time with them and maybe bed them in over a slower period. And I, the only example not quite on the same level that I can maybe think of, and Liam, you'd be able to explain it better than me, but Evan Ferguson has had his injury issues, but there's been so much talk around him. I think my understanding is that Brighton are kind of looking after him as much as anything physically in terms of his injury, but a little bit with the, the hype around him and trying to think a bit more sort of in a, in a calculated way, typical of, of Brighton. Yeah, it's something Graham Potter spoke about actually. Ferguson made his debut on the Potter and he said a similar thing about Aaron Connolly, who was a player who burst onto the scene similarly and is now doing um, well for himself in the EFL, having not worked out necessarily at Brighton and saying that sort of for young players coming through, I think he said you need something like 50 games or 75 games that you're looking at over a broader period of time. And that now can be a season's worth of games for, for players when you when you look at Saka, you look at players like that. And Ollie Kay, one of our writers, has a great piece on the site where he writes about sort of Bellingham and Saka and this upcoming generation of players that just don't, with so much international football and club football, don't really get a chance to rest either between seasons now or even between games. I think it'd be really interesting to see more research on this. There's someone on Twitter called uh, Rahul, uh, exceeding ex-puns on Twitter. And this is a, a great, a great name. This is from 2021-22 and he's basically plotted the average uh, career minutes played and the actual chronological age of players. And the big caveat is that all the stand-up players you think of, of Ronaldo uh, and Messi are way above the curve for the amount of minutes you'd expect them to play by their age because they've had such a long peak that by the end of it, whereas players have tailed off, these players have kept going. But you look sort of more towards the start of it and the likes of Sterling, Harry Maguire, Cesar Spidaqueta, Thibaut Courtois are all players that are well above where they would be. And you look at what their actual minutes played is compared to the average player that's played their number of minutes and it's into sort of mid to late 30s and you start saying now oh you know Sterling's having injury issues Maguire's having question marks over form really they're maybe more comparable to players at the end of their career than they are players around what is the conventional peak age and you're looking at now Bellingham, Bakayo Saka, Alfonso Davies, Donnarumma which is different because he's a goalkeeper but you've got a lot of those big early young players that you go it's not a problem now and as Mark says they're exciting to watch and they're really important for their teams but I know Arteta's come under a lot of scrutiny for how much he's using Saka and you go maybe there needs to be some legislation in this because I don't necessarily blame a manager for wanting to play a player that's that good yeah. all the time. I'm not quite sure how to express this but is there a way in which football may need to adapt in the way that it thinks about how long a player's career should go on for, right? I feel like it's accepted that players if they haven't played until they're, let's say, 34, 33, 34, they've tailed off too early and, you know, they've they, they've not reached the, the end of an average playing career. Um, but 
if a player is playing as many minutes as most people in their careers do between 21 and 35, but they're doing it between 17 and 31, there's actually playing the same amount of football, just in a different time frame. And, and maybe we're so st stuck in how we think about players' retirement age and peak age that it's going to be a kind of awkward change for the way that we think about things as well. No, I think that's a fair point. I mean, the other thing I'd add is the life of a professional footballer is not just playing games. Like There's training sessions as well. I think, I don't know, again, Liam, you might have something more to add than this, but like sometimes we're like, well, that guy's played 2,000 minutes, that guy's played 100. But overall, they'd be doing similar levels of training sessions. Mm. You know, there's, it's not just about the minutes. I know it varies in terms of intensity and stuff, but that's never really mentioned, which I found quite odd. Yeah, it's... It's a case then that training will be adapted to either compensate for minutes that haven't been played or to minimise based on minutes that have. And you get some quite amazing scenarios where sort of post-match you'll get, okay, you've got 10 players available for the first part of the session, which maybe is, is a rondo or a small possession thing. But when you go into a bigger part of the session, there's certain players have to drop out because um, they've played too much recently or they're coming back from injury, etc. that coaches will have different numbers available for different parts of a session which obviously test their ability and skill set there and it's something that I, I didn't really think about too much when I, was, I did a piece recently sort of on the rise of the coach analyst role and how a lot more analysts now are getting closer to coaches um, and following them you know to clubs and, and being really a an equivalent of an assistant just maybe termed a bit differently and then saying how it's a big part now that because they get so much less time on the training pitch at least sort of top level clubs that are playing in yeah, in international or continental tournaments that it's a way with the analysis to actually compensate for time you miss out on the training pitch because they might have to have 15-20 minutes to prepare for a game or it might have to be walkthroughs only because it's they can't do that sort of high intensity stuff and this is then a way for them to say okay we can get our technical tactical points across we can work on developing a player to work on how they're going to refine their runs I can't remember who the example is in the piece but using Cavani as the example as the striker to teach someone else and yeah it's just a different way of, of teaching players. I think if we were to take it to the other extreme, I'm not suggesting that players should be, you know, playing 5,000 plus minutes every every season um, and sort of flogging them to the extent that they might get an injury. But there is something to be said about the the research that I did with these wearable technology companies, um, the companies like Catapult and Stat Sports, that they will also they'll look at thresholds for the individual player so that you can see whether there's you know time in the red zone, whether they've got an increased risk of injury because they've maybe played too much football. But they also said, we've got to acknowledge that if they don't play enough football, as you say, the 2,000 minutes compared to 100 minutes, not playing enough football or not play, being as sort of physically at the exact threshold can also increase your risk of injury as well. So you need to keep that balance, keep that individualization of the player monitoring. And I suppose, as I say, in contrast to what I mentioned earlier, you'd hope and you'd strongly suspect given the clubs that these players play for that they are being monitored so so well with the GPS trackers and and looking to see whether there's an increased risk of, of injury to come from a non-contact injury I always have to sort of emphasize that because you never know just by proxy of playing so many minutes that there's maybe an increased risk of, of a contact injury but muscular injuries you think that they these clubs are monitoring it and then you think of all of the other things as you mentioned before Ali of, of nutrition and sleep and all the stuff that comes with it that they are so finely tuned that to the extent that we're saying we can extend peak we can also it looks to be the case that clubs and players now have the, their overall playing career extended as well. I would also say that like we've spoken about there being outliers technically and tactically but you're going to get physical outliers too players that just can play a high volume of minutes that 
that's how, as we were saying at the start, an average works that if you've got players that will score goals late in their career, you will have players that either because they're just physically predisposed this way um, or they take really good care of themselves or just things things line up for them. Uh, there's obviously always numerous factors that mean that they can play to that high level all the time. Sometimes it is positional as well as we've spoken about. So it's also a case to think of like not going too far because there, there will be players that you don't want to constrict from saying, and I know players will always say that they want to play, but there will just be some phenomenal athletes and players now are, I think, fitter than they've ever been, especially younger players coming through that have had some of them now will have had a decade worth of sports science research that's been implemented into their training and and that will you hope extend the longevity as well as now making it more intense ball and play time and stuff I think is is up at a good level so that all has an impact too yeah I suppose the with the incredible technology and the advances in sports science I don't know if we can say definitively Mark but I suppose that the strong hope is that on one side of the equation we have increased workload for professional footballers, particularly at the elite level and the amount of football that they have to play uh, and the intensity of it. You just hope that on the other side of that, that is mitigated or cancelled out by the advances and improvements in sports science, in understanding nutrition, etc., in order to you know not make the first part of the equation too concerning, I guess. Yeah, and I think as much as anything in, you know, Liam made the, the point before that players will always say, yes, I can play, I'm, I'm fine to play. And that will always continue to to be the case. But now managers and coaches, and again, to your point, Ali, you suspect and you really hope that the managers do utilise and use this data rather than say, the data suggests that, for example, Bakaya Saka is in the red zone, but we are playing Man City at the weekend. So if I could just eke out one more game, then you think, okay, well, that could be ill-advised. Now, the, the fact that you've got data advancements in sports science, but the application of that advancements in sports science can then be used as a, as a useful tool to say, yes, actually, we're going to look at your numbers and there's probably reason to suggest you maybe shouldn't start today. And as, as part of this research I, I did for the wearable tech, I was speaking, I was lucky enough to speak to, to Michael Owen and he said that had this technology been in existence, you know, at the start of his career, because we, it's very well established that I think it was 1920 that he had a, a really bad hamstring injury that curtailed his the mm. rest of his career. He similarly had to adapt his game. He would have maybe kind of slowed down himself or the, the managers and the coaching staff around him would have slowed him down because he was just really ready and willing to play every single game. So as I say, it's having the sports science, but it's the the application and utilisation of the sports science where it's obviously really key. And I, I think managers are under so much pressure that they will at times probably feel forced to use players even if they're not 100%. I feel like Son Heung-min is a great example last season of someone that came out at the end of the season said I think he played for like three quarters of it through an injury, getting injections or needing surgery and had surgery this summer. Now I appreciate they've had a new manager come in, a new style, but he's a great example of a player that for all intents and purposes, it looked like he'd come up the, the end of a peak in playing a very specific role in a specific team. And a bit like uh, with Benzema and Ronaldo, Real Madrid, when a player leaves, now he's been moved into a different position. I'm not to say he's necessarily at a peak again, but he started the season really, really well in a way I think most of us didn't necessarily expect him to, doing something different. Um, I think that adaptability is something that was a, sort of a golden thread running through Michael's piece as well of 
either circumstances lining up but also players being able to change stuff as the team changes or the, the game demands change to then sort of peak again even if it's not maybe as high as before. And I think Son's a good example. Michael made the, the point before that it's not just about minutes played that we can see on FB Ref of the you know the season gone by it's the training and everything like that but it's also the travel all and the, the mental side of the game as well. If you are a son who's going to go play for your, your national team in Southeast Asia. If you're a player playing in South America, we've seen it recently after the international break that it's not just about the minutes, it's the physical exhaustion, the jet lag, all the stuff that maybe then leads to poor sleep, which then mm. increases the risk of injury, all, all the things around that as well. So, you know, again, the criteria of what do you consider peak and all of the, the things to drill down on, it's a lot of off-pitch stuff as well as the, the on-pitch stuff as well. There's one interesting aspect to me anyway, from a recruitment standpoint within football, where, although it's a generalisation, I feel like over the last decade in particular, there's been a real onus on signing younger players, the average age of, of signings, uh, getting younger as teams uh, broadly look towards uh, developing young players and uh, resale value and getting the upside that way and I'm always and, and this is partly in the lower leagues which I cover as well I always think there must therefore now be a ton of value in unfashionable players and by unfashionable I mean players approaching or into their early 30s where it strikes me that there will be a lot of clubs whose recruitment philosophy means they wouldn't sign a player of that sort of age because they're so hell-bent on, on getting resale value. Um, but in ignoring players like that, there therefore must be some value in, if you can, be predictive with a player's uh, performance level over the next few years, picking up players that you know have a bit of extra in them and you, you understand you're going to get the benefits of experience as well. I think the word you used exactly perfectly there was predictive. I think we're talking a lot about averages here, which as Michael said at the start of this, isn't ideal because there's so many exceptions to the rule on an individual basis. And I think that having that predictive power to say, yes, typically a 32 year old shouldn't be able to, to perform at a certain physical level or a technical level, this player in question is maybe undervalued for that and could, and could do a job. And that could be, by changing the the role that they have as well, we spoke about the you know minimizing the amount of physical exertion you maybe have to to go through to maximize your your technical skill set. Strike as being a key example of that, but I think that's where you can really get the the edge. And there's some really good work that's that's I'm sure going on within clubs, but more publicly, um, I know historically Analytics FC have done some really good work on age curves and looking to see versus the average age for that not just that position but that role. So you think about uh, an attacking fullback versus a defensive fullback, they have very different sort of requirements as to what they have to do. Could we maybe get that player at that age and maybe refine their role a little bit to extend their peak or sort of plateau that curve because it could be quite a sharp descent after a certain age. So um, yeah, there's some great work that's, that's going on to, to have that exact predictive power, as you say. Well, thank you very much. I feel like I've learned a lot there about peak age, peak performance and more. Huge thanks to Michael to Liam, to Mark Carey uh, for talking me through it. And thank you for listening. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast feed so that you can listen to all future episodes of the Athletic Football Tactics podcast as soon as they are released. And do subscribe to The Athletic today, theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the best place to go for a discount on an annual subscription. If you haven't read Michael's excellent piece that went up this morning on this very topic, then make sure you read it. It's an absolute cracker. Thanks for listening and go well. The Athletic.